Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. It is tragically easy for those of us in ministry to forget this, to get so wrapped up in nuances of theology and specific strategies that we no longer personally seek the lost. You know, a story is told about a particular group who called themselves fishermen. There are many fish in the waters all around this group. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means, defended fishing as an occupation, and declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners and waved them around. The fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organised a board to send out fishermen to other places where there are many fish. The board hired staff and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing and to decide what new streams should be thought about. The staff and committee members didn't fish. Large, elaborate and expensive training centres were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers didn't fish, they only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many graduated and were given fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters which were filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned and sent to fish, but like the fishermen back home, they never fished. Like the fishermen back home, they engaged in all kinds of other occupations. They made all kinds of equipment to travel here and there to look at fish hatcheries. Some also said that they wanted to be part of the fishing party, but they felt called to furnish fishing equipment. Others felt that their job was to relate to the fish in a good way, so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know that they were nice, land-loving neighbours, and how loving and kind they were was enough. After one stirring meeting on the necessity of fishing, one young fellow left the meeting and went fishing. The next day he reported that he had caught two outstanding fish. He was honoured for his excellent catching and scheduled to visit all the big meetings possible to tell how he did it. So he quit fishing in order to have time to tell the other fishermen about his experience. He published a book about his experiences and was also placed on the fishermen's general board as a person having considerable experience. Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. Imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were really not fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. 
yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never fishes? Is one really following if he isn't fishing? When you hear the word worship, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind when you think of worshipping and glorifying God? In the Christian recording industry, the words worship and music have almost become synonymous. Even church terminology has changed over time to call the role of the music minister a worship leader or a worship pastor. Though worship music is beneficial, has our focus on it caused us to divine worship too narrowly? Hello and welcome to our GCS podcast with author and evangelist Tony Anthony. The role of music and singing in Christian worship is biblical and plays a vital role in the life of God's people. Today we often chatter back and forth about different types of worship, whether it's traditional, contemporary or charismatic. But have you ever sat down and really contemplated what it means to worship God? Why do we sing, pray and kneel before God? Is God pleased with the way we worship? If God is the centre of existence, maybe we should learn what he really expects from us. In another perspective, if man creates and directs his own existence, why bother with worshipping anything? Let's join Tony as he looks at the topic of biblical worship from an angle you may never have considered. If you've ever read or heard my testimony, you'll know that my favourite Bible verse is John 8.36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It was probably the linchpin of my conversion to Christ. I know now that the Holy Spirit was at work and God, in his infinite love and compassion, was honouring the faithful people trying to reach me, as well as those who had been praying for me. And that precious scripture cut deep into my heart, like the two-edged swords that it is. 3rd of May 1991. Freedom. Pure, glorious liberty. That is what I tasted for the first time in my life. Those remarkable words, the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed, became embedded deep in my soul. And in the next few days, I realised with grateful certainty that I would never go back to my life of bondage and self-serving. All these years later, I still get goosebumps every time I read or hear that Bible verse. And I praise God that I still know the freedom of being a son, not a slave of the master. Yet I confess that in a sense, I've taken new chains upon myself. In my passion for the lost, motivated by true gratitude for my own salvation, I am aware of my tendency to take on a burden that's not rightly mine to carry at all. I perceive that this was a similar fate at one time suffered by the great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor. For years, he strived at great personal sacrifice to introduce the Christian gospel to the lost millions of China. Though his efforts lost none of the zeal, there was a time when he recorded a quite desperate depression about his work. His biographer Roger Steer reports that Taylor prayed, agonised, fasted, tried to do better and made resolutions. He quotes Taylor, Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. I knew that if only I could abide in Christ, all would be well, but I could not. I began the day with prayer, determined not to take my mind off him for a moment, but pressure of duties, sometimes very trying, constant interruptions, apt to be so wearing, often caused me to forget him. Then one's nerves get so fretted in this climate that temptations to irritability, hard thoughts, and sometimes unkind words are all the more difficult to control. Each day brought its register of sin and failure, or lack of power. To will was indeed present with me, but how to perform I found not. You know, Hudson Taylor battled and strived throughout the summer of 1869, but it is reported that when fresh revelation finally came, it left him transformed and released new power to his ministry. And as I thought of the vine of the branches, 
What light the blessed spirit poured into my soul. How great seems my mistake in having wished to get the sap, you know, the fullness out of him. I saw not only that Jesus would never leave me, but that I was a member of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. You know, the vine now I see is, is not the roots merely, but, but all roots, stem, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, fruit. And Jesus is not only that, he's the soil and the sunshine, the air, the showers, you know, and 10,000 times more than we have ever dreamed, wished for or, or ever needed. You know, uh, what, you know, what an amazing joy, you know, seeing that truth. But, you know, the sweetest part is the rest which full identification with Christ brings. I'm no longer anxious about anything in that sense of, of speaking, you know, as I realise this, you know, for he, I know, is able to carry out his will and his will is mine. I'm sure many people in ministry can relate to the despair suffered by this great man of God. Despite all good and godly intention, many of us still fall into this trap of taking the burden upon ourselves. And before we know it, our special union with our Saviour is somewhat thwarted in urgency to get a job done. I, I know I'm terribly guilty of this. I really am, you know, but like Taylor, I also recall an enlightening and liberating point when I began to consider the truth of my motivation to be engaged in the battle of evangelism. You know, we've previously spoken about the folly of defining evangelism as the winning of souls. And I hope that, you know, you, you've already, you know, experienced immense freedom as you begin to absorb the light of that revelation. But there's more. There's so much more. What does motivate us to evangelize anyway? And this is the question that I often find myself putting to delegates that uh, attend our evangelism training conferences around the world. The answers, quite rightly and understandably, open discussions on Jesus' commandments, the Great Commission, our heart and love for the lost, our gratitude for our own salvation, and so on. These are all good, noble, and seemingly biblical motivations, but in researching and meditating on that question, I believe the Holy Spirit's granted me insights into much higher and, and, and pure, more pure and, and thoroughly true motivation. You know, I praise God for this revelation because it is one that is completely liberating, refreshing, and so energizing. And, and simply put, you know, for it, for it is the most simple and beautiful of things. Our underlying motivation to share the gospel comes most naturally and essentially out of a desire to glorify Christ. Surely, surely. we just want to glorify him. And that's what our ultimate motivation should be. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his insightful book, The Presentation of the Gospel, he writes, The supreme object of the work of evangelism is to glorify God, not to save souls. Indeed, it seems to me that with Christ at the centre, the focus is moved away from us, from our task of evangelism. It also shifts our concentration from the lost and our overwhelming mission to reach them. Instead, it, it fixes our eyes firmly on Jesus, where it should be, and all that he is and all that he has done for us already for all eternity. When our focus is on Christ and on glorifying him, we inevitably avoid the traps we previously talked about. There's now no pressure to convert, no temptation to water down the gospel, no feeling of failure or desperation that our evangelism efforts are thwarted or inadequate or, or useless. You know, I admit there was a time when each day I felt compelled to go out and make converts, completely misinterpreting the scripture that tells us make disciples, as we read in Matthew 28 verse 19. 
I was determined to share the gospel with as many people as I could so that they might give their lives to Christ there and then. But when I was liberated into the realisation that my motivation for evangelism should focus on nothing else other than bringing glory to Jesus, my whole approach altered a great deal. I'm still determined on a daily basis to talk to as many people as possible about the gospel, but these days I can almost feel Jesus whispering in my ear, you know, Tony, relax. Remember, your main motivation is to exalt me, to lift me up. And God the Father might chip in, you know, Tony, I love you. I made you. I'm your daddy in heaven. Please talk to this person or that person. Tell my story. Glorify me to them. But please don't push them. Don't try to convert them. I will deal with that in my time. Listen to the Holy Spirit. He'll guide you as to whether you should lead this person in a prayer of commitment. Please don't do it in your own strength. Don't do it without us. Work with us so that my son might be glorified. Please just do your part. Speak the good news and trust in my perfect time. You know, I'll never forget my encounter with Charlie on the number 29 bus. I was working at an insurance company and every day I caught the same bus to work. And in those days, I made my own home printed tracts to hand out to people. It was just a simple piece of paper with my brief testimony on one side and the gospel message, um, a prayer and my contact details on the other. One day, I watched an elderly gentleman getting onto the bus. I felt my hand reaching for the tracks in my pocket even before he had managed to sit down. As I prepared to get off at, the bu- at, my, at my stop, I paused by the man and said, Excuse me, I'd really like to give you this. He looked a little surprised but thanked me and smiled as he took it. Well, about a week later, I had a phone call. Are you the man on the bus? You gave me a piece of paper on the 29 bus last week. Was that you? Well, I braced myself. I'd had so many such calls and expected some abuse of some kind. You know, yes, it was me, I said. Why'd you give it to me? Oh, I took a deep breath. <laughs> Here we go. He's really going to go for it now. Well, I know it might sound crazy, but I felt God asking me to give it to you. There was a short pause and again I waited for the abuse. My name's Charlie, he said, and I'm very glad you did. I must admit I nearly dropped the phone in surprise. (laughs) I was in the army as a young man, Charlie continued. There was a time when we were in the trenches being shot at and I thought my time was up. My friend next to me was praying for me and he shared this Christian message with me. I really wasn't interested so I just told him to go ahead and pray but leave me out of it. Well, Charlie's voice softened and almost choked as he continued. My friend gave me a challenge that day that I put off. You're the first person in 40 years who's tried to give me that same message again. This time I wasn't going to put it off. I said that prayer last night and I gave my life to God. I really want to change and I want to go to church. Can you tell me what to do next? Oh my goodness. Charlie's story is never far from my mind. And I, I often wonder about that faithful soldier, you know, who first shared the gospel with him in the trenches. My goodness, what an amazing fellow. You know, I pray that he never felt a failure, never felt discouraged. You know, that day he glorified Jesus by telling his story to a friend, to Charlie, and by sowing that first seed. And all these years later, I had the privilege of seeing the work of the Holy Spirit come to fruition. And I'm sure the two men would enjoy a special embrace when they meet in glory. I'm looking forward to meeting the pair of them there as well. You know, Dr. John MacArthur writes, one of the greatest ways we can give glory to God is to declare the gospel. Its message radiates the glory of God like nothing else in the universe. 
When we declare the gospel, we are declaring the clearest and most powerful aspect of God's glory. Thus, declaration of the gospel is one of the highest and purest forms of worship because it most clearly affirms the glory of God. And you know what MacArthur and many other scholars and lay people alike recognize is that this is a heavenly strategy for evangelism that must be made known among the church. Evangelism should be motivated by nothing more and nothing less than glorifying Jesus. Whilst the church is ignorant to this fact and puts other motivations for evangelism as primary, it is open and exposed to attack from the evil one. Of course, there will be those who argue and contest this. On one of my missions in Australia, a pastor took exception to this message. She pointed to the church's very successful feeding program. Certainly, they were to be admired. This is how we evangelise, by showing love to these people, she told me. What is more important than showing them love? Well, I wouldn't deny there was a degree of truth in what she said. Of course we need to care for people. But as I've said before, good Muslims, good Hindus, good Buddhists and good atheists do that too. That's part of our human condition. Praise God for it. Okay, so perhaps many of the poor people being fed recognise that it is a Christian church doing the feeding. But even so... The best that can be said is they are seeing people doing good work because they love God. They're still not hearing about God's love for them, though. They are still ignorant of the fact that because of this wonderful love for God, Jesus came to earth, was put to brittle death, but rose again to save them. Showing love to others is a good motivation for any kind of action, but is not the primary motivation for evangelism. And similarly, I became alarmed at the message one of our evangelists was giving as we ministered and encouraged a group of young missionaries in Finland. My friend's a fabulous evangelist, full of zeal and passion. I love travelling and working with him, but in his enthusiasm to inspire others to share the gospel, he began on this occasion to proselytise an idea that may sound biblically plausible, but in fact it distracts from the real truth of what our motivation for evangelism should be. I hate the devil, he said, to a hungry and excited audience. The devil put cancer in my body and I hate him for it. He's tried to take me down so many times, he went on. But you know what I do? You know the best way to get back at the devil? Preach the gospel. That's what you've got to do. If you if you want to get back at the devil, guys, just proclaim the gospel. And, you know, later I had to gently challenge my friend on this idea. You know, should our motivation to the work of evangelism be inspired by the devil and attack and an attack on him? No, surely not. That is absolutely not the way of Christ. It is true that the devil uses all sorts of strategies to attack us, and it's horrible, but we must never stoop to his level. What did Jesus do? Did he come with legions of angels to slaughter the army of demons and, and attack the devil? No, he came in absolute humility and pure love in meekness like a lamb to the slaughter. You know, we should never preach the gospel out of hatred or spite or anger towards the devil. When we preach the gospel, it should be motivated by and and because of pure love of Christ. It should be because he has asked us to do it and because our primary intention is to glorify him. You know, and what does it mean to glorify Jesus? You know, according to the Enhanced Strong's Lexicon, to glorify means to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. It's to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. 
You know, insert the name of Jesus then into some personal thing. Then consider the word worth. This is defined as a quality that commands esteem or respect or merit. And so to glorify Jesus is to cause him to be dignified, esteemed and respected, to have his merits manifest and acknowledged, don't you think? And when we define the word manifest, we find to reveal or demonstrate plainly. You know, the greatest motive for going to non-Christians with the gospel then is to reveal the merits of Jesus so that they will see him as he really is, the greatest of all heroes. He's the one, not us. Look to Jesus. You know, and how will Jesus be glorified to the non-Christians? Only when you and I cause this to happen. And looking at it this way, surely the obvious revelation is that evangelism is fundamentally nothing less than worship. We could open up enough material for, you know, for a whole new podcast, a series of podcasts, you know, at this point. But I love to imagine your spirit soaring as you contemplate for yourself the multifaceted gem that is worship, worship of our creator and his precious son, Jesus Christ. When we go into the world and proclaim the gospel, we're worshipping God, actually. It's worship. There are many scriptures that make this clear. I mean, look at Psalm 96, verses 1 to 4. It's like a clarion call. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous deeds among all peoples, for great is the Lord's and most worthy of praise. When we're giving the gospel to non-Christians, we're explaining how great Jesus is. We are proclaiming his worth. We're showing him and others that he is worth it to us, that we should sacrifice ourselves in this way, dedicating our time, our money, efforts to lift him up because he is so worthy. You know, the Apostle Paul stated in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was worship when we put aside our pride and our fears, our inadequacies and our busy schedules to go to the world and evangelise. When we suffer persecution and rejection because of it. You know, we're acknowledging that Jesus is worth it all and God surely sees this attitude as an act of worship. This idea of sacrificial and joyful giving is easily recognisable in the human condition. What is it to be in love? When a man loves a woman, he dedicates everything to her. He wants to be with her. He willingly sacrifices other things to see her. He spends money on her, listens to her problems, shares her worries and puts off other engagements and his natural desire to spend as much time as possible with her and for her benefit. No request is too big or problem too burdensome. A friend of mine tells the story of his wife who, in the early stages of pregnancy, had overwhelming cravings for oranges. They were enjoying a weekend break in London when in the middle of the night his wife woke him up. Distressed by her longing and suffering through lack of fruit, you know, what could he do? There was no room service on duty, so without hesitation he pulled his clothes on top of his pyjamas and set out into the night looking for somewhere to buy oranges for his beloved, who he so wanted to please. Why? Because she was so worth it. When we come to that point with Jesus, we will go to any length to tell others about him, to proclaim his worth to the nations, no matter what the personal cost. 
We read in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 7, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. We hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.